Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Harry Cliff on how to make an apple pie from scratch. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine category for episode number 105 with Sir Paul Nurse on What is Life? My name is Paul Nurse. I've written a book, What is Life? If you read it, you will understand what biology is, what life is, and you will do it in five simple steps. And this is Books on Pod by Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Harry Cliff is a University of Cambridge particle physicist and a researcher at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. He's also the author of the new book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch, in search of the recipe for our universe, from the origins of atoms to the Big Bang. Harry, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. You as well. The pleasure's all mine. Uh, this is a fascinating book, Harry, and if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I read a lot of books. I never feel more intellectually inferior than I do when I'm trying to comprehend physics. So for you to be able to get through with somebody like me with this book, I think is saying something. So congratulations on that. What was your goal with this book? Well, I mean, it was kind of to do just that. I I spent a lot of time in the last, well, in my career talking to people about physics, because obviously that's my passion. And I, I kept getting the question, you know, is there a good book about particle physics cosmology that kind of summarizes everything in a neat little package? And I struggle to give people recommendations. There are a lot of books that cover aspects of, you know, the stuff that's in this book. But what I was really trying to do is bring it all together in one place. If you want a kind of a friendly introduction to particle physics, astrophysics, cosmology, this is the book for you. And that that was sort of what I was going for. So the fact that, you know, that you've enjoyed it is, is really great to hear. So why did you decide to go with an apple pie when searching for the origin of everything? Yeah, well, I spent... I spent a long time thinking about this book and I spent a long time trying to figure out a kind of a hook for the story because in the book you get into some quite abstract subjects. We're talking about, you know, kind of the origins of the universe, fundamental particle physics, the Large Hadron Collider. But ultimately the question the book asks is, what is ordinary physical stuff? What is matter made from? Um, where does it come from? And I wanted something that would keep reminding people that no matter how kind of esoteric we got, we're still basically talking about mundane, ordinary stuff. And I was, it just actually, the, the idea came to me as I was walking through a local subway station. So I live in South London and around the corner from me, there's a subway station called Oval, uh, where they have a thought for the day written on a whiteboard. Um, and the particular day I walked through, well, sometimes the quote is like a, a quote from an ancient philosopher like Socrates, or sometimes it's something that sounds a bit trite from a self-help book. But on this particular day, there was this quote from Carl Sagan, who is this very famous uh, American astrophysicist and popularizer, who was he had this TV series that came out in 1980 called Cosmos, which I think they recently remade for Netflix with Neil deGrasse Tyson. But in one of the episodes of Cosmos, uh, the episode begins with an apple pie being brought out to Carl Sagan, and he looks at the camera with a little twinkle in his eye and says, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And the basic idea of what he's really saying is that, you know, even an object as mundane as an apple pie, which we probably all think we know roughly how you make an apple pie. Actually, if you want to do it from scratch, you've really got to understand where all the stuff of the apple pie came from, going right back to the very first moments of the universe. So that's the sort of hook into the story. So the kind of book is framed around the idea of trying to find the ultimate apple pie recipe. And we kind of trace the ingredients of the apple pie from starting with the apple pie itself, then going through the hearts of stars and eventually right back to the very first moments after the Big Bang. I'm going to pause for just a second, Harry. Are you, uh, your mic's obviously on the desk. Are you putting your hands on the desk as you're talking? Oh, it, yes. Okay. I probably uh, am. Yeah, I'll take yeah. those off. I, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, we, we don't need to redo anything. It's it's very subtle, but it's something that I think uh, might become an annoyance throughout the course of the conversation. All right. Uh, okay, here we go. cool. Uh, one of the more interesting things that I read in this book, Harry, was an admission from you that your favorite subject in school growing up, your favorite science especially, wasn't physics but chemistry. Why was this? Well, I, I think 
really like I, I don't know what your experience of chemistry at school was like but it was just a much more exciting place to be in the chemistry lab so you, you got to do kind of experiments that quite often involved things that could catch fire or explode or things that were kind of had an element of danger like acids you know that had these dangerous sort of warning labels attached to them so it just had this kind of air of i guess kind of it was it was a sort of more romantic place a more exciting place i remember physics classes involving quite often you'd be doing something like wiring up a circuit and trying to get a light bulb to come on or you know timing the swing of a pendulum which you know as much as i love physics it's quite hard at least as a teenager to get that enthusiastic about whereas chemistry i think was always kind of had that excitement about it because of the the experiments um and it was kind of i think also in chemistry you're kind of understanding what the physical world is made from you know at a basic level and i guess i got to the point with chemistry where i wanted to know where the rules that you learn in chemistry come from and when you do that you get down to atomic physics and eventually you get to particle physics so i guess chemistry was really the beginning of my journey into eventually ending up as a particle physicist thank you yeah basically chemistry labs were way more fun places to be yeah i think uh even for those of us who uh, may not have understood all of it the experimental nature of high school chemistry was a lot of fun that includes of course, uh, flammable materials, whether explosions or not, flammable materials create a new air when they burn. Is there a good way to explain why this happens to the layperson? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose this is one of the questions that troubled chemists going back to the kind of 18th century. And there was this idea at the time that when you burn something, so say, let's say, for example, you're burning a piece of wood, that there was something that was basically given off in burning, and this stuff was called phlogiston which was a kind of uh, this, this substance people believed that was contained in the material that was burning like the wood, and then it would be released. And once all the phlogiston run out, then the fire would stop burning. And it was actually, this is kind of the opposite of actually what is really happening. And the person that figured this out was this incredible French chemist called Antoine Lavoisier, who was this uh, this Frenchman living in the, uh, the late 18th century. And he was the first person to realize that actually burning isn't a process of releasing something from the combustible material. It's actually a process of absorbing something. So what's happening when you burn a piece of wood is oxygen from the air is being sucked into the reaction it's being reacted with the carbon in the wood and then what eventually something is released which is carbon dioxide so in that sense yeah burning changes the the atmosphere around that changes the air and you, you eventually you know if you do that in a sealed container eventually the oxygen will be consumed and you'll end up with a, a vessel full of carbon dioxide who is john dalton and why is he a crucial person in the evolution of our understanding of atoms so dalton um Dalton's a really interesting character. He was really the first person to make at the idea of atoms scientific in a, in a proper way. So, I mean, actually, if you read popular science books, quite often you'll hear the name of Democritus raised. So this is an ancient Greek philosopher who was supposedly the first person who had the thought, well, if I take a bit of matter and I cut it up and cut it up, will I eventually get to a point where I can't cut it any smaller? And basically, with more or less no evidence, Democritus says, yes, I think there is an ultimate point, and we'll call this an atom, which in ancient Greek literally means uncuttable, so it's a thing that can't be divided any smaller. So if you read popular science books, often Democritus is given credit for, for the atom, but I actually think Democritus is way overrated. I mean, he never did any experiments to check whether this idea was right. It was really just him lying back on a, in a chair somewhere, sort of, you know, coming up with thought experiments. But the person who really sort of put this idea on scientific grounding was Dalton. And what Dalton, Dalton was a really interesting guy. He was actually from a very poor background. So his father was a weaver, grew up in a very, uh, well, quite remote and a part of Northwest England uh, in, the, in the late 17th century. And what Dalton actually became really interested in was uh, the question of why is it that when you react different chemicals together, they always seem to react in fixed proportions. So another way, let's go back to the sort of burning thing. If you take carbon and react it with oxygen, you always get, you always find that carbon and oxygen react together in fixed ratios. So if you measure the amount of carbon and the oxygen that's absorbed in the reaction, it always comes in fixed amounts. And Dalton's insight was this suggested that what was happening, if you imagine at the atomic level, you've got a, an atom of carbon and an atom of oxygen. Well, the simplest molecule you can get from carbon and oxygen is just carbon oxygen joined together in something called carbon monoxide. The next simplest is where you have two oxygens, which is carbon dioxide. And the fact that you kind of have to add these lumpy atoms together explains why you get these fixed ratios in the reaction. And so Dalton was the first person really to propose that you could explain this fact that chemical elements always react together in these discrete, dis, uh, discrete ratios was indirect evidence for the existence of atoms. And he came up with this chemical atomic theory um, 
which was really, really sort of revolutionary and, and transformed the way people thought about chemistry. But the, the trouble was really for Dalton that although he got this kind of indirect hint that atoms were real, the actual, the actual atom itself is so fantastically tiny that it would take more than a century for anyone actually to sort of experimentally really prove that atoms exist. So it, for a long time, it was this kind of circumstantial evidence based on the way chemicals react. But to actually get the proof of the existence of atoms came came a lot later. Why do you consider carbon the David Bowie of the periodic table? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's just because carbon carbon is kind of really cool. It's got so many different guises, right? So, I mean, in its pure form, at least, you've got, uh, you know, the graphite that you might find in your pencil. If you, you know, there's diamond, of course, you've got, and now today there's all kinds of interesting research going into, um, you know, nanomaterials made of carbon, stuff called graphene, which is basically this kind of single layer of carbon atoms uh, joined together, which has kind of promised to revolutionize technology in various ways. Well, I'm not sure it actually has just yet, but yeah, carbon just has this kind of strange fact, the strange ability to form itself in pure, in its pure form into lots of different substances that seem to have completely different properties. So yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool element. And also, I mean, in its not pure form, it's also the element that's absolutely crucial to our existence, like our bodies, the molecules that make up our, our DNA, our chains of carbon atoms joined together with other elements like oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty key element. And actually, it's an element that I kind of trace through the story. Once we kind of, the beginning of the book, I do this really silly experiment where I basically break an apple pie into its chemical elements by heating it to a really high temperature. And what you end up with at the end of that reaction is basically charcoal. So it's this kind of like black carbonized lump of apple pie and that is carbon and the sort of the part of the story of the book is trying to figure out where that carbon ultimately came from out there in the in the universe yeah i love that tie-in throughout the book just out of curiosity that doesn't doesn't relate to our conversation at all what's your uh, favorite david bowie song oh that's a good that's a very good question um so many to choose from i think well this is a bit this maybe is a bit sacrilegious but i well okay my favorite bit, pure David Bowie song, I think, is probably Life on Mars, but I also really love Under Pressure, which he performed with um, Freddie Mercury as well, obviously. But yeah, those would be my two top picks, I think. Both great picks. Harry, you write that 1905 has mythic status in the history of science, in large part because Albert Einstein wrote four papers that each sent shockwaves through the world of physics that are still being felt today. How did he prove the existence of atoms in one of these four papers with an assist from John Baptiste Perrin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Einstein, so 1905, <laughs> it's this year that if you're a scientist, makes you realize like how little you've accomplished personally. Because <laughs> in this one year, Einstein was a really young guy. So he was like 25 in 1905. And he produced four papers, any of which I think would have been enough to secure his place in the history books. But to do them all at the same time is kind of amazing. But I mean, the, the two most famous papers that he produced that year, one of which laid the foundations of quantum mechanics, which is the, you know, the kind of the, the physical laws that we understand governing the, the microscopic realm. So these are the laws that govern atoms and particles. There was a paper that basically said that light, which had previously been thought of as a wave, was actually broken down into these little discrete particles or quanta, which we call photons. So that was his first paper, which was kind of basically set in train one of the greatest revolutions in physics has ever taken place, the quantum revolution. It, around the same time, he produced another paper which introduced the ideas uh, that would go on to form uh, the theory of relativity. So this is basically a complete rewriting of our basic concepts of what space and time are. Um, so those are the two, you know those are the two really famous ones. Another paper contains uh, well, it, it doesn't actually contain this equation, but it contains a form of the equation, probably the only equation that everyone's heard of, which is E equals mc squared. Uh, which basically says that matter and energy are interchangeable, that they're you know different sides of the same coin. So that was the third paper. And the fourth one, um, which is probably the least famous, but this was the paper that actually led to um, scientists finally being able to prove that atoms really do exist. Because when, so Einstein, as a young student, he used to have these kind of wide ranging philosophical discussions with a friend, a friend of his, uh, Michael Besso. And they were following this debate that was going on in sort of science and philosophy at the time, which was basically about whether atoms were real or not. And uh, you had these these two kind of figures who were diametrically opposed to each other. Um, uh, so so um, 
uh, these two, these two thinkers are basically, you know, this, this, sorry, there was this philosopher called Ernst Mach, who, despite the kind of broad acceptance of the idea that atoms were real, refused to accept that they existed. And he said, well, if, you know, if you can't see something, if you can't actually sense it directly, how can you know it's there? It's just a kind of convenient fiction. So this paper that Einstein wrote, he basically became determined to prove that Mac, that, you know, that, to prove to Mac that atoms really did exist. And the way he did this was really kind of ingenious. The, the basic problem is atoms are so fantastically tiny that in 1905, there was no microscope that could come anywhere close to being able to see one individually. But Einstein realized that you might be able to see the effect of many, many atoms working together. And the basic idea if, is this, if you, if you get some very, very fine powder um, and you put it into, say, water, and you look at it under a microscope. If you imagine that powder, that a particle of that powder, it, that contained this. It's a huge thing compared to an atom, so far, far bigger than an atom. But it's surrounded by water molecules, so these little molecules of water. And Einstein's insight was that because you have all these water molecules surrounding the powder particle, they're all jiggling about because the water's, you know, got some heat in it. At any one moment, the number of blows that the uh, water molecules give to the powder particle will change. And sometimes there will be a net force in one direction. Sometimes there'll be a, a net force in the other. So what actually ends up happening is you do this, you look at uh, these dust particles under a microscope, you'll see them jiggling around. They kind of do this weird, what's called a random walk, which is quite often compared to a drunk person staggering about in a dark room. So they're doing these funny sort of staggered motions, jittering, almost as if they're alive. And Einstein came up with a, a prediction, basically, of how far one of these particles of powder should move in a certain amount of time, thanks to the impact of all these water molecules. So, and, and then Perrin, who was a French physicist, about 10 years later, did an experiment and measured how quickly these particles move around and basically showed that Einstein was exactly right. And that there's no way of explaining this if, if matter, if, say the water molecules, for example, if, if water was made of a continuous substance, if it didn't have a molecular structure, this wouldn't happen. So this was basically undeniable proof that atoms existed. And that kind of settled this debate that had been going on for, well, I guess, thousands of years. It was around this time that our understanding of the atom structure really changed, thanks in large part to several shockingly simple experiments that happened around the turn of the the 19th to 20th century. Uh, one of these experiments was conducted by Ernest Rutherford. Why do you believe Rutherford is the greatest experimental physicist of all time? I just, I mean, Rutherford, if, if you're an experimental physicist, there's something really sort of appealing about Rutherford, which is basically, you know, particularly today uh, in, in sort of modern physics, uh, there's this there is a kind of this hierarchy in physics where the theorists are kind of often regarded as the kind of the clever the really really clever people and the experiments are a bit more kind of work experimentalists and more like work a day getting on with kind of you know slightly more kind of down to earth work but rutherford was he, he didn't really have very much time for sort of abstract theoretical ideas he was really kind of doing physics at its kind of most kind of uh, with, with its closest connection to nature so he was really looking at how nature was in the laboratory and making discoveries by doing experiments. And, and he was also this kind of very appealing, like larger than life figure. He, he was kind of this big booming presence in, in the lab. He would kind of, I think he was famous for walking the corridors of the lab, um, sort of tunelessly bellowing onward Christian soldiers. Then he would go into the sort of uh, the offices of his various uh, members of staff and help them out with the problem. But he also had a kind of really volcanic temper. So he was this guy who was really passionate about physics, but also kind of a, a really interesting character. But he basically, he himself or the people, this, the team of physicists around him, which he led really effectively, made a series of really major discoveries. Um, and probably the most famous of these is it took place in, at the end of the, the first decade of the 20th century. So what Rutherford and his colleagues were doing was looking at, there had been this discovery at the start of the 20th century of this phenomenon known as radioactivity, which is basically the observation that certain certain elements like uranium spontaneously spit out radiations. They give off particles. And Rutherford uh, was one of the first people to start to use radioactivity to study the structure of the atom. So there's this very famous experiment that he did in Manchester, um, where essentially you have a, a radioactive source that spits out these radioactive particles called alpha particles, and then a very thin foil of gold. So like imagine this kind of thin layer of gold. And he, and he and his colleagues were firing alpha particles at this gold foil and looking at how they bounced off the gold. And the thing that rather at the time atoms were thought of as being these kind of kind of like a sponge puddings, so they were these kind of big blobby soft amorphous things. And 
so what Rutherford and was alpha particles, these kind of radioactive particles that got spat out, they were thought of as more like bullets. So Rutherford, if you imagine firing a bullet at a sponge pudding, you would expect the bullet to go straight through it and, and you know, kind of not get repelled. But what um, Rutherford and his colleagues Geiger and Marsden found was that occasionally an alpha particle would actually get knocked straight back off one of these gold atoms. And this made absolutely no sense, because if the gold atom was this spongy pudding, there's no way it should be able to send a bullet bouncing backwards. And this like this observation sent Rutherford into this like long period of of kind of contemplation where he kind of stopped. He spent all his time in the lab doing experiments for then for sort of about two or three years. He was basically at home in his study, thinking and thinking over the problem. And eventually he realized that the explanation for what he was seeing was that the atom wasn't this kind of blobby sponge thing. It actually had a tiny nucleus at its center. So basically most of the mass of the atom was crushed into a tiny point about 30,000 times smaller than the atom itself. And what was happening when these alpha particles bounced back, it was very, very occasionally, they got close enough to this tiny nucleus and they got this big repulsion because of the positive charge of the nucleus and they were sent pinging backwards. So it was a bit like, you know, shooting a bullet and occasionally it hitting a ball bearing and coming back at you. Mm. And this leads to a kind of completely wholesale revolution of, of how we think about atoms and their structure. So that's probably his most famous experiment, but under his guidance, his colleagues later in the 20th century discovered also that the nucleus is made of even smaller things. They discovered these things called protons and neutrons. So basically, not quite single-handedly, but almost single-handedly, he and his colleagues completely kind of drew up our modern understanding of the atom as we know it today. And all just by doing these kind of quite basic experiments in university laboratories with very little money and you know, kind of on a shoestring budget. Hmm. Harry, you travel to a lab in England whose scientists are trying to make a star on Earth. We're not talking about a movie star here. We're talking about the sort of star that you look up into the sky to see at night. Now, that sounds like the start of the uh, bad guy story from a superhero movie. What does it mean to make a star on Earth, though, and why are they doing it? Yeah, so this is a, a lab called, uh, it's a place called Cullum, which is near Oxford, out in just to the, to the west of London. And, and basically what they're trying to do is to replicate the, the the power source of the stars and the sun here on Earth. So the, the reason the sun shines, the reason the stars shine is because of nuclear reactions going on in the center of those, of those stars. And so basically what happens is at the center of our sun, for example, you have this like super, super heated plasma, temperature of about 15 million degrees. And under those extreme conditions, hydrogen, which is the most basic element, gets fused together to make helium. And the fusion of hydrogen to make helium releases energy. And that energy is what ultimately turns into sunlight. So the reason we have day and night is because of these nuclear reactions going on in the center of the sun. And now, nuclear fusion is one of the most uh, efficient ways of generating energy. So if you could recreate this on Earth, basically there's enough hydrogen in seawater to power all of our needs for forever, essentially. So you'd have you know unlimited clean energy. And so achieving basically a nuclear fusion reaction on Earth in a controlled way in a power station is one of the kind of holy grails of, of physics and, and nuclear engineering. And so this is what there's a big research center outside Oxford where they're trying to do this. So they basically build this enormous uh, vessel where they use very powerful magnetic fields to contain basically something that's a bit like the center of the sun. It's this like superheated gas of hydrogen. They heat it to, I think it's actually to hundreds of millions of degrees. So it's incredibly hot. And the idea is to try to contain that burning plasma within these magnetic fields so that you can get nuclear fusion reactions going on and then using the energy from the reaction to, to power a, a turbine basically and then generate energy. Now it's not, no one's managed to achieve this just yet, but there are lots of kind of exciting, there's lots of exciting work going on in this area. So maybe in the next few, maybe, I mean, there's this big joke about nuclear fusion that it's always 50 years in the future, which <laughs> isn't going to be fast enough to help us deal with climate change. But there's been some quite promising signs in the last few years that we might be about to crack it. So, you know, maybe in the next 10 or 15, it could be something that starts to contribute energy um, to the to the power grid, which would be a really, really exciting moment. Do you think the future of Earth is dependent on them figuring out how to harness this energy? I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, we've got lots of other promising ways of generating energy now. You know, I think probably being realistic, fusion is is probably unlikely to 
be the solution to the near-term problems we have. But just mm. because, I mean, you never know, one of these reactors may work out in a, in a short time scale, but it seems more likely they'll be ready in, you know, in the order of a few decades. So, but in the meantime, we've got solar and wind and hydro and lots of other ways of generating energy. So I think that that is enough to, to get us, if, if we really put our minds to it, to sort of solve the energy crisis in combination with other technologies. But I suppose in the long run, um, fusion is very promising because, you know, if you want to keep consuming more energy, you don't. You eventually end up covering huge, co you know, huge parts of the country in solar panels or, or or wind turbines. So in the future, if you had a fusion power station, you could build something which would be much more like an ordinary modern power station today. It just takes up a small amount of space, and then would be, you know, a, a sort of safe, clean way of generating energy. So I think in the, in the long run, it's certainly got, you know, it's going to have a really important role. But in the short term, I mean, we've got we've got other clean technologies that can help address the problems we're facing. How are supernovas important in making the elements required for life? Yeah, so I mean, I suppose one thing I didn't say in all of this is that that fusion reaction they're trying to recreate turns hydrogen into helium. And helium is the, sec the second uh, lightest element in the periodic table. But if we want to make carbon and oxygen and the other elements that make up the world around us, um, we need to go further. And supernovae are basically the, the end product of much, much more massive stars than our own sun. So what basically happens is as a star ages, um, it burns through its hydrogen supplies and eventually gets to a point where the hydrogen runs out. And what happens then is that the, the heat source of that star is removed. So the core of the star, which is kept inflated basically by the heat coming out from these fusion reactions, starts to collapse. Um, and as it does, the temperature increases as it falls in on itself, and then helium will start to burn, start to fuse to make carbon. So that's the, the next element that gets made. So this is what our sun will eventually do. So in about four or five billion years, our sun will run out of hydrogen. Uh, it will start then, it will swell to something called a red giant, this enormous sort of supersized version of the sun that will probably end up consuming the Earth and all the other inner planets. Uh, but we'll, we'll probably be long dead by then anyway, so nothing to really worry about. Um, and then helium will be fused into carbon. And that will kind of eventually, that will go on for a few more years until eventually the helium runs out and then the sun will lose its outer layers and you'll end up with something called a white dwarf, which is a kind of hot ember left of the, the core of the sun, which is mostly made of carbon and oxygen. Um, but if, you, if the star is much heavier than our sun, something more spectacular can happen, which is when the helium runs out, the core collapses again, and then carbon starts to burn to make even heavier elements like silicon. And this process goes on and on and on, basically with fuels running out, core collapsing, heating up more, until eventually uh, the entire center of the star gets turned into iron and nickel, which are the two uh, most stable elements in the periodic table. So when this happens, basically you can't have any more fusion reactions. That's game over for the star. And what then happens is you have this inexorable collapse of the star's core. Uh, and this leads eventually to one of the most violent events in the universe, which is a supernova explosion. So basically the core implodes on itself and basically bounces off itself and throws the outer layers of the star into space in this really violent reaction. And these supernova explosions are really important in terms of they, they enrich the universe in heavy elements. So a lot of the oxygen, well, most of the oxygen that we breathe and the oxygen that's in our bodies and in our apple pies ultimately came from one of these really violent supernova explosions. They play a really key role in the origins of the elements. So stars are created as a result of the death of other stars then, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when one star dies, it wafts its atmosphere out into space and that gets mixed up with dust and gas. And then eventually that goes on to form new generations of stars. So I think our sun is like a third generation star. It probably came from the deaths of multiple generations of stars before it. So obviously the very first star that ever existed did not have access to this voided matter to mix with dust and gas. And this is the foundation of the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory is how we start to explain how that very first star and thus our universe formed. And there are plenty of people who have helped contribute to our understanding of the Big Bang Theory over time. Who is George Gamow? And why do you give him a ton of credit amongst the sea of people who have helped with our understanding of the Big Bang Theory? Yeah, so, so George Gamow was a, a physicist from Odessa in modern day Ukraine, although at the time it was it was part of the, the Soviet Union. So he was a, a nuclear physicist and he had a really he's a really crucial role in the story in, in several ways. He's one of the key people that helps to figure out the the nuclear reactions that go on in the center of the sun, or at least sort of come up with the quantum mechanical principles which allow those reactions to happen. But he also becomes very interested in where the chemical elements come from. So it, at basically the middle of the 20th century, there's this big uh, debate about 
where do all the chemical elements come from? And there's actually two different schools of thought. One is that they're made in stars, which we kind of already discussed. And the other is that they're all made in the Big Bang. So at the t uh, in, in the sort of 1920s and 30s, it was realized that the universe was expanding, which means that if you wind the clock back, that means in the past the universe was smaller. And if you take that to its logical extreme, that means eventually the universe was all concentrated in, in one place. And this is the beginning of the universe as we, we know it, the, the Big Bang. And Gamov was basically trying to find a way. He, he realized that the very earliest moments of the universe would be extremely hot. And under those very extreme conditions, hydrogen and neutrons could come together and make the chemical elements. But he had a really hard time of making this work. So he worked on this idea with, with a student called Ralph Alpha. And their basic idea was to try to cook all the chemical elements in a period of a few minutes at the beginning of the universe. But they ran into this problem, which was once you get to helium, there's no easy way of fusing helium together to make carbon, at least not in the conditions that existed in the Big Bang. So it kind of the Big Bang theory actually kind of fell out of favor as a method for making the elements because of this. And it was the sort of method using the stars that became more popular. But there was this, this mystery, actually, that the star, that the sort of the, the making elements in stars couldn't explain, which is that if you look into space and measure the amounts of the different chemical elements, you basically find that about 75% of the universe is hydrogen, 25% is helium. And then there's a tiny fraction, you know, around a percent or so of all the other elements. So carbon, oxygen, everything else is just a really tiny sliver. But if the elements were made in the stars, because the stars make helium, but then they also make the other elements, you'd expect there to be about the same amount of helium as there is the other elements. But there's 25% versus 1%. So this was really hard to explain. And eventually it was realized that what actually had happened was in the very first few minutes of the Big Bang, basically the first 15 minutes or so, huge quantities of helium were fused together to make hydrogen. So you imagine that, that fireball the beginning of the universe where things are incredibly hot you have these particles moving around together they bump into each other they make helium and that that helium is basically what dominates the universe today that's what's left over from the big bang so one of the actually one of the big bits of evidence that the big bang actually happened is the big bang theory really correctly predicts the amounts of helium and hydrogen that we see in the universe around them so this was a kind of key part of the story and gamov was absolutely kind of crucial to figuring out that story and how it all uh, all came together Harry, we see because of light, of course, photons are a result of light being created. What exactly are photons, and would you mind explaining how they're made by using your Alice and Bob analogy? Oh, yeah, sure. So, well, so photons are the particles of light. So we, thanks to Einstein and, and quantum theory, we, we think of light as being made up of, you know, lots and lots and lots of these tiny little particles called photons. Um, and... Photons are created all the time. So whenever you, you know, turn your phone on, there's photons that come flying out of the screen. If you switch on a light bulb, you produce photons. So these are things that get created, you know, all the time in, in our daily lives. And the sort of one of the big questions, I guess, in the, the middle part of the 20th century was where do how, how does this actually happen? How do photons get made? And the, the sort of person who was really responsible for, for answering this question is a guy called uh, Paul Dirac who was um, a very, probably, you know, the, the greatest, the second greatest physicist of the 20th century after Einstein. And Dirac came up with, uh, was one of the first people to come up with an idea, this, this concept of something called a, a quantum field. So this sounds like it's quite a scary term, but we kind of, we're all familiar. Oh, let's break it down. So quantum fields made of two parts. There's the quantum bit and the field bit. Now, a field is kind of formally, at least quite an abstract concept. Formally, it's like this mathematical object that has a value everywhere in space. So, you know, imagine kind of an array of numbers filling this room, filling the room you're in, for example. But actually, they're not, they're much more than just abstract concepts. Because if you've ever held a magnet, you know, say you've got two magnets, two north poles of magnet, you push them together, you feel this force, you feel this repulsion between them. And you can kind of, you know, even though there's nothing there to see, there's nothing visible, you can definitely feel there's something physical there. And what you're feeling there is a field. So in that case, it's a magnetic field. Um, and what Dirac uh, sort of basically said was that what happens when um, a, a photon is created is that you, you create a ripple in one of these quantum fields. So these quantized little particles of light are actually little ripples moving about in these quantum fields. And, and the sort of the way I try to explain this in the book in sort of with a slightly silly analogy is that you imagine you've got two people. So let's say you've got these two people, Alice and Bob, who are the stars of many a physics analogy from lots of books. And they're holding between them a bungee cord. So imagine like an elasticated cord that they're holding between them. Now, it, 
this, this bungee cord basically represents the electromagnetic field, the, the field which photons move around in. Now, in an ordinary field, let's imagine that Alice starts to move her hand up and down. She can create that will create waves in the bungee cord. So you get this kind of ripple of waves that will start to move along the bungee cord. And in normal physics, in classical physics, you can make a wave of any height. So she can move her hand around like by, you know, a few centimeters and get like a little wave or she can wave it around wildly and get really big waves producing that in that on that cord. But let's now imagine that instead that cord is a quantum bungee cord. So it behaves a bit like a, a quantum field. Well, what Alice finds actually is that if she moves her hand by around by just a little bit, nothing happens. The, the, the bungee cord doesn't move at all. And she keeps she keeps moving her hand around more and more at bigger and bigger uh, amplitudes. Suddenly, at a certain amplitude, there will a wave will ping along the along the cord. So basically, what in, in a quantum field, there's basically a minimum amount of waviness that you can have. You can't have an arbitrarily small wave, and the smallest possible wave you can have is the quantum of that field. I mean, in the case of the electromagnetic field, that's the the photon. Harry, what series of events occurred in the early 1930s regarding positively charged electrons that you admit still gives you goosebumps? <laughs> yeah, so this is again this guy, uh, Paul Dirac. So what Dirac was trying to do in the sort of late 1920s, around 1928, was come up with a quantum theory for the electron that also uh, was consistent with Einstein's other great idea, which is special relativity. So what relativity says basically is that the laws of physics have to be the same no matter how fast you're moving and that includes the speed of light so this is a kind of quite counterintuitive thing because if you imagine let's say that i've got a torch and i'm running towards you i don't let's say uh, kind of two meters a second or something um and the speed of light is the speed of light and the torch is moving towards you you would kind of expect because the light's leaving that torch at the speed of light and i'm moving towards you at two meters a second that the speed that the light should arrive at you at should be the speed of light plus two meters a second because the source of the light is moving but that isn't what we that, that isn't what einstein tells us he says that it doesn't matter how fast you're moving or how fast the light source is moving light always travels at the speed of light and, and that leads basically to some really weird consequences but the most important one is that space and time themselves become relative and what dirac was based on to do was come up with an equation for the electron that was consistent with these ideas that was also consistent with quantum mechanics. And the way he did this was basically by guessing different sorts of equations that had the right sort of properties that he thought the equation ought to have. And in the process, he discovers this equation, which he, he sort of describes, I think himself as being, you know, incredibly beautiful. It has, it basically, it describes the behavior of electrons around atoms more accurately than any theory had been able to up to that point. And it also predicted the existence of this property called spin, which had been uh, seen in experiments already. But the other thing the equation did, which was that it predicted the existence of a positively charged electron. Now, this was a big problem for Dirac because no one had ever seen a positively charged electron. All the electrons that had ever been seen in nature up to this point were negatively charged. And Dirac was really, really dismayed. He kind of, he thought he'd come up with this beautiful solution that matched all the atomic data really well. Um, and that finally had brought relativity and quantum mechanics together. And then it seemed like it was going to be ruined by this strange prediction of this positively charged particle that no one had seen before. And he spent a lot of time trying to get rid of these positively charged electrons from the theory, but he basically found that they were kind of an irreducible feature of, of this equation. He couldn't get rid of them. And so eventually he made this really bold prediction, which was that there must exist positively charged electrons. These things that no one had ever seen before must actually exist in nature. And then the thing that really gives me goosebumps is about a year or two after he made this prediction in 1932, an American astronomer called Carl Anderson. So he was looking at cosmic rays. These are particles that crash into the upper atmosphere of the Earth uh, from outer space. And he was studying and using something called a cloud chamber, which is basically a, a very early kind of particle detector, which allows you to see where different particles have gone. And he took this, this single photograph, basically, that showed a, a line curving in his cloud chamber. Now, this line looked just like an electron, but it was curving in the wrong direction. In other words, it was curving in the opposite direction you'd expect if it was negatively charged. And Dirac, uh, so, so Anderson basically published this, this picture and said this was evidence for the existence of a positively charged electron. So he basically vindicated Dirac's, um, Dirac's prediction, which is kind of, so Dirac had come, come up with this idea 
based purely on sort of physical laws and mathematics. And he predicted the existence of basically a whole new type of matter. So the positively charged electron, we now call the anti-electron, and it's the first particle of antimatter that was discovered. So Dirac basically just by applying pure thought had predicted the existence of a form of matter that no one had imagined, no one had ever seen, and then it was, and then it turned up in nature. So I think that's a kind of really amazing example of the, the power of physical theory to to predict things about nature that we've never seen. Have you ever had the pleasure of taking part in something where you are able to prove uh, a theory that seems plausible but has not been proven up to that point? Well, oh, I, I wish. No, I mean, <laughs> most of my job actually involves trying to disprove a theory in a okay. sense. So in particle physics at the moment, we have this really, really almost annoyingly successful theory called the standard model of particle physics, which is basically the closest we have at the moment to a theory of everything. It describes all the particles that we know about in the universe. It describes how atoms work. It describes all the forces of nature except gravity. And it's basically been vindicated in every experiment. And But we know that it's incomplete. We know that there must be other things to add to this theory because for one, exa one example is this stuff called dark matter, which is basically this invisible substance that there's about five times more of it in the universe um, than ordinary matter. We know this from, from astronomy, but the standard model cannot explain what dark matter is. There's no particle there that can explain it. So we know there must be more to discover. So what me and my colleagues at the Large Hadron Collider have been trying to do for the last 10 years is to find some little place where the standard model stops working and we can sort of find an area where it breaks down. But frustratingly, so far at least, we've not yet been able to find really conclusive evidence yet at least that that it does go wrong so yeah a lot of what we're trying to do is really to break our current theories rather than to sort of vindicate them but um yeah hopefully we'll get there at some point well one theory that was vindicated in the early part of the last decade was the higgs boson theory so what is the higgs boson and why is it so important yeah so the the higgs boson i mean it was kind of in a way it was the sort of holy grail of particle physics for for a long time and it's famously difficult to explain that I think in the UK the a newspaper ran, ran a competition to come up with a good analogy for the Higgs boson and they, they gave one out in the end but it, none of them were really that good but I'll, I'll do my best to explain it <laughs> okay thank you but basically the um the issue was that when the standard model of particle physics was being put together in the 60s and 70s there was this weird thing that theorists found which was that if you gave mass to the particles so this basic property of mass the theory broke down. It didn't work. It gave nonsensical answers. So it seemed like the laws of physics were telling us that particles weren't allowed to have masses. But if that were true, then we wouldn't be here because the, the fact that, you know, for the fact, for example, the fact that the electron has a mass allows atoms to form. If the electron didn't have a mass, atoms wouldn't form. We wouldn't be here. The universe would just be this boring haze of particles with with no structure. So clearly mass exists. So the question was, how does this how does this work? And the basic idea was that there was a another type of quantum field in the universe. So these are these invisible, these quantum fields are these invisible substances that fill all of space. And the way we think of particles is as ripples in quantum fields, these kind of little disturbances moving around in these invisible fluid like substances. And what Peter Higgs and his colleagues proposed was that there was another field that hadn't been discovered before, which became known as the Higgs field. I don't think he, Peter Higgs said it was called the Higgs field. He probably, that probably wouldn't have gone down very well. Um, and the, the particles that we're made of, the electrons and the quarks that make up atoms, for example, get their mass by interacting with this field. So it's almost like this field is like a kind of thick treacle. And when particles move through it, they get slowed down, which creates the impression of them having a mass. So this was a sort of the theoretical idea, at least. Uh, and this idea actually underpins our current understanding of particle physics. But until 2012, we had no direct evidence that this field really existed. And this was the finding evidence this field existed was the key, one of the key goals of the Large Hadron Collider. So the basic idea, in case you're not familiar with the LHC, what it is, is essentially this gigantic ring, a 27 kilometer circumference ring that bangs, that fires particles at each other at a tiny fraction below the speed of light. And when they collide, they create new particles that you can then study with with huge detectors. And the idea was that if you could collide particles together hard enough with the LHC, you might be able to create make this Higgs field wobble. So basically create a ripple in the Higgs field, and that would show up as a new particle called the Higgs boson. So finding the Higgs boson was really important because it basically proves the existence of this Higgs field. And that's the thing that gives mass to the particles we're made of. And without it, we, we wouldn't be here. So 
This particle was eventually discovered in 2012 by two of the big experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. It was a really exciting day with lots of kind of media fanfare. And, and it was really the conclusion of a, a search that had begun in 1964, which was when Peter Higgs and actually five other, five other theorists had proposed this idea for the first time. So it, was, it gives you a sense of how long it takes in modern physics sometimes for these, these predictions to be, to be vindicated. But it was a, a really, really big moment because with the discovery of the Higgs, not only do we now understand why particles have mass we also have the kind of final piece of the standard model that hadn't yet been found up to that point pardon my ignorance here if this is an ignorant question but i envision the collisions happening at the lhc as having a sort of violent energy expression is this the case yeah i mean definitely they're like these are like the most violent processes that that we've ever created you know so when you when these pro so what actually happens is you have these particles called protons which are the, the center of hydrogen atoms and they're they're accelerated to 99.999991% the speed of light. And at that incredible speed, they have huge amounts of energy. So when they collide, you get the most awesome kind of concentration of energy that's really existed in our universe, apart from in very extreme places since the Big Bang. So the LHC is almost, is in, in a sense, it's recreating uh, forms of matter and conditions that only existed in our universe about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So you, these are really, really violent processes. and when these particles collide, you kind of basically you get this almighty explosion of other particles that come flying out in all directions. Um, so, you know, all, all different kinds of things are created. And then basically what you're doing there is you're making matter out of energy. So it's sort of in a way it's the opposite of a nuclear weapon. Like a, a nuclear weapon turns a little bit of mass into lots of energy. The LHC turns lots of energy into a really tiny bit of mass. So you make this tiny blob of matter a sort of state of matter that hasn't existed since the very first moments of the universe. There's a building at CERN labeled antimatter factory. What exactly is going on there? I mean, yeah, so the antimatter factory is this really cool warehouse like building buried on the CERN site, which is this big sprawling laboratory outside Geneva. And basically in this building, um, physicists are making atoms of antimatter. So anti-atoms. And the reason they're doing this is they want to basically study find out whether antimatter behaves the same as ordinary matter so there's this but i should probably explain that every particle that we know about has an anti-version so the electrons and the quarks that we're made of also have anti-versions there are anti-electrons and anti-quarks and if you bring those anti-particles together you can make anti-atoms and in principle actually you know if you could say imagine meeting a version of yourself made of antimatter there would be no way of knowing uh, that that person was was made of antimatter antimatter would look exactly the same basically so the the only way you would find out that your your doppelganger was made of antimatter would be if you went up and shook their hand there would be this violent reaction uh, where the antimatter and the matter would annihilate uh, and you basically create an in incredible explosion so one of the big mysteries in the universe at the moment is why is it that when we look into space we don't see any evidence of large amounts of antimatter because there's this like really beautiful or perfect symmetry between matter and antimatter you would have expected equal amounts of them to be made in the big bang and you'd expect there to be anti-galaxies out there um but we don't see any evidence of that because if there were anti-galaxies basically where they pushed up against uh, the ordinary matter universe we would see annihilation so we would see radiation being created from matter antimatter annihilating each other so to try and explain this, we need to basically find some subtle differences between matter and antimatter. And this is what they do at the antimatter factory. So they do this really cool thing, which is where they basically make anti-hydrogen. So they get anti-electrons and anti-protons. They mix them together in a very controlled, very clever way. And then they trap the anti-atoms in this vessel with a very powerful magnetic field. And then what they do is basically they, they do something called spectroscopy, which is where they shine a laser light into the at the anti-atoms and they look at how the anti-electrons jump between different energy levels around their atoms and this has a kind of characteristic what we call spectrum so different frequencies of, of light are absorbed and, we, and then they then compare this to ordinary atoms and see how they behave and they're looking for very small differences between the two so if and if you find um, a small difference that could potentially answer the question of why the universe appears to be just made of, of matter and what exactly happened at the Big Bang that meant that matter won out over antimatter. One of the more confusing things that I read in this book is that particles can be left or right-handed. What does this mean? Yeah, that's right. So and it, it does sound weird at first, but the basic reason is that particles have this property called spin. 
well, some particles do. So like an electron, for example, behaves as if it's rotating. So you can kind of think of it a bit like a, you know, like a, a kid's toy, a spinning top, where you, which kind of sp you spin it on the table surface and it spins around. And that spin can either go clockwise or it can go anti-clockwise, or we call it left and, and right-handed, basically. Um, so particles, yeah, they, they have this, this handedness. Um, and the, the, basically the way you define this is, is for the way that the electron spin is pointing compared to the way it's moving. So if imagine an electron moving from, you know, uh, say across, across a screen, say from, from left to right, if its spin is pointing in the same direction, that's right-handed. If it's pointing in the opposite direction, that's left-handed. So that's how these things can have different handednesses. All right, so uh, the Big Bang Theory, while it is commonly accepted, it still doesn't fully understand what happened in that first split second that the bang happened, that created our universe. Do you believe an answer exists that fully explains how our universe started, Harry? That's a really big question. I Honestly, I don't know, um, and I don't think I know, and no one really knows. I think that the what we've basically been doing over the last 100 years or so is getting a better and better understanding of the laws of physics and the ingredients of the universe that existed going further and further back in time. So every time we build a new experiment like the Large Hadron Collider, we build a more powerful telescope, you kind of quite often end up looking back further and further through the universe's history. And so far, we've got to about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. That's kind of the conditions we can recreate, say, at the Large Hadron Collider. So the question is, though, if you really want to understand the ultimate origins of everything, or in other words, if you want to know how to make an apple pie from scratch, you kind of need to be able to go right back to time zero. So the very moment of the Big Bang. The problem with doing this is that the, the energies involved, as you go close to the Big Bang, the energies involved get bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it becomes kind of almost impossible to imagine how we would ever build an experiment that could probe those kinds of energy conditions. So, for example, to to probe um, the conditions that existed basically at the moment of the Big Bang would require a particle accelerator the size of the Milky Way, um, huh. which is, is probably not going to get built anytime soon. So we have this kind of quite hard limit in a sense. Well, not hard limit, but we have this limitation, I guess, imposed on us by technology and by the laws of physics that suggests we, we may never be able to get right back to the very moment of the Big Bang. Um, but on the other hand, there's a very long way to go before we get to that point. So we are sort of, I think, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the, the 90s and reading popular science books, you, you got this sense from the sort of discourse at the time that physics was kind of hurtling towards a dramatic conclusion. And we were going to very quickly have a theory of everything. And we're going to understand the ultimate origins of the universe, what all the basic ingredients of the universe were. And that has proven not to be true. And actually, it's proven, it's proven much more, much more difficult than I think a lot of people thought. Um, so I think you know, there's, a, there's a long way to go. There's experiments that are you know, being planned in the next few years and decades to come, which will tell us more about these, those early conditions that will take us a step further towards the Big Bang. But in terms of ultimately getting there, I mean, it, it's a very long way off in the future. Who knows, really, I guess is, is the answer. But maybe we'll get there one day. I think that's a great way to end today's conversation. He is Harry Cliff, a University of Cambridge particle physicist and a researcher at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. He's also the author of the new book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch in Search of the Recipe for Our Universe, From the Origins of Atoms to the Big Bang. Harry, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this fascinating book. Oh, great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Join me next time when I speak with William Sticksrude and Ned Johnson on What Do You Say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.